tell me where in the world is crying in San Diego. Welcome back to another episode of Where in the World is Crime in San Diego. Happy Monday. So we're now picking up from where we left off. Um, a lot has, has happened. So <laughs> uh, I think we're going to be a little rusty, but uh, give us some time and we'll get back into the groove of things. But uh, Angie, this is your case. Yes. So I have no idea what you're talking about. I know you mentioned it to me um, and you just have the, the, all the OMGs, OMGs. Oh my gosh, this, oh, this is nuts. This is nuts. So finally, I get to listen to what you were researching us. I think you, along with everybody listening, feels the same way. So welcome back. But yes, I am so excited because this case is literally bananas. Um, it's right up that whole like love Valentine's romanticized theme that we just yeah. survived. So let's get into it. All right. So give us our sources. Our sources are San Diego Reader, San Diego Union Tribune, findagrave.com, True Crime Guy on YouTube, prisonwriters.com, murderpedia.com, and the New York Times. So our disclaimers for this week are quite a few. Murder, self-harm, addiction, drug abuse, and infidelity. Oh, wow. So it okay. gives you a little bit of everything. <laughs> yeah. So when I say this case is a bit, it's an understatement of the year. Can I, can I throw in Lady Gaga bad romance in there? Oh, my God. Yeah? <laughs> I think it'll tie in. Okay. All right. All I'm, right. I'm ready. You have a title so for us. So we do. It's called American Beauty. Ooh. Oh, like the movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Which the title will make sense in just a little bit. All right. So this week we are talking about Kristen Rosam. And she was the eldest of three born to Ralph and Constant Rosam on October 25th, 1976 in Tennessee. When she was little, her family moved out to Northern California. Um, her dad was a professor of law. He actually worked under the Ronald Reagan administration, helping make new laws. So he was like pretty up there. Oh, wow. Okay. In constitutional law. Wow. And her mom was a former higher power executive, which from what I found is like between a lawyer and a judge, I think. If anybody knows the specifics. I've never heard of know. that. But okay. Yeah. <laughs> but both of her parents were pretty. Pretty well known. Pretty, pretty well powerful. in the professional world. Yeah. Okay. They weren't like exactly your low class family or middle class family. Blue collar, white collar. Yeah. So obviously with parents that have high ambitions, kids have high ambitions. So she was involved in a lot of activities as a child, but mainly modeling and ballet. So you see the beauty part come in. Mm-hmm. Okay, I see it. So she did like modeling, but ballet was really where she like thrived. So that became where she focused her attention on and she wanted to like push forward. And she got really into ballet until the worst thing that can possibly happen which to any athlete is you get injured and she ended up severing some ligaments that made it to where she could never dance again. So we're talking about like, like ligaments in like in her legs or knees in her ankles or in her ankles. Oh, and ballet is a lot about balancing your weight. Yeah. That's where on your tiptoes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So 
Obviously, leaving ballet was like tragic for her. She spiraled into depression. She was very young. I mean, very young is in the sense of like teenage years. That's hard. Yeah. That's difficult. Because she dedicated years of her life to something. Yeah, your passion. You're passionate about ballet, dancing, and that's your, you know, that's your exit. That's your career that you want to. Yeah, that's what you're building up for. And the next you notice is like, gotcha. And it's gone. And we see it a lot with athletes where like you dedicate your whole life and years and years and then you have no plan B. So this caused her to go into depression and she was struggling a lot to the point where her parents felt that her best option was to go to an all girls boarding school. But being far away from home, she was able to begin experimenting with drugs and alcohol, specifically methamphetamine. So this addiction led her to start stealing money and checks from her parents' pockets and from their purses. Um, She would use their credit cards and just kind of rack them up. She would take jewelry from the home, like anywhere she can get money, she would. And this obviously led to a lot of fights. These fights could get so bad that cops were often called to the home. Oh, wow. I remember they lived in like a nice neighborhood. So I'm Mm -hmm. sure it wasn't common to hear constant yelling. So one of these events ended up leading to her actually getting arrested because they found um, drugs in her room or like on her. And the police actually arrested her that time. Oh, wow. I remember she's still a teenager. She's not. She's. She's like, still in high school. She's still in high school. She's not, yeah. she's not legally 18 or anything like that. She's, no. Oh, wow. She's still under the parental supervision. Yeah. Oh, wow. So for your parents Jeez. to be okay with you getting arrested, like, they had it. That is just so tragic. I mean. It I, just shows, like, the severity of how far it escalated. Mm-hmm. That's, that's terrible. So in 1994, she began attending Redlands University, which is in Northern California. And... There, while she was away at college, she was self-harming, and she even attempted to unalive herself. Oh, wow. So it got to the point where she was tired of it. She decided to run away from home. She dropped out of college, and she actually ended up moving in 1995 to San Diego to attend SDSU. So she kind of just wanted, like, a brand-new, fresh start. She was living in Chula Vista, which we all know I'm familiar with. <laughs> Your neck of the woods. Yeah. So I was like, oh. But if you've lived in Chula Vista or in South Bay, San Diego, you know how easy it is to hop over the border for the party scene, especially in your under 21 years. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember being 18. Right when I turned 18, I went down to TJ and I went to uh, Mystery. It's cheaper. It's a better vibe. Later hours. Back then, 20 bucks would last me all night. (laughs) Back then. Yeah. Well, she was going back in 95. So imagine how much it lasted her. So on one of these party nights is when she met Greg DeVille's. After their first date, they actually went back to his apartment and like it quickly escalated from there to where she ended up moving in with him. Oh, look at that. So it was like a very fast paced romance. And his current roommate at the time was his brother, Jerome. So, of course, like I'm sure it like cramped their style a little bit to have a girl move in. Mm hmm. And Greg knew from the beginning that she was struggling with an addiction. He was very anti-drugs from the gate. So he was like, I will help you get clean. I will hold your hand through this. I'll support you. But you need to leave it. So she agreed. She moved in. She was doing everything he was asking. And then all of a sudden, things start disappearing from the house. Mm -hmm. Valuable things like jewelry or expensive things or money from their wallets. 
And I mean, when you're at home, you throw your wallet on the table, you forget about it. Yeah, like the VCR is gone. Yeah. The CD player. (laughs) Yeah, just randomly things just start vanishing. So Jerome brought it up as an issue. She swore left and right. I didn't touch it. I didn't take it. Yeah. And then they found them in her purse. Talk about getting caught red-handed. Yeah. So Jerome and it obviously was like, I'm done with this. Like, I'm moving out. She can stay. I'm just going to remove myself. So Greg was like, okay, this has to be the last time. And like, you really need help. So she did the steps and she was constantly working on getting clean. And eventually she ended up graduating from SCSU with honors in biochem in 1998 oh wow so like years go by and they're doing pretty well okay and she was actually already interning at the san diego medical examiner's office at the time so she ended up landing a full-time job straight out of college as a toxicologist which anybody that's graduated you know it's kind of hard to just jump into a full-time job right away in your field even if you're an intern like i mean chances are you have to go through some you know some struggles like yeah so that's so it seems like she's turned her life around. She set herself well. up pretty well. Yeah. And Greg at the same time had graduated with a degree in biotech. So he was also doing really well. Oh, okay. They were both driven. They were very smart. They both were career oriented. Similar fields to where they kind of like had that common. 1998, they get engaged. They had just graduated college. They're doing well. All right. June 5th of 1999, the following summer, they get married. So right before the wedding, Kristen's going through the typical cold feet. And she's telling her mom, I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think I should do this. And her mom's really proud of seeing where she's at now. So she's pushing her to like, Greg's good for you. He loves you. Like, you know, cold feet are normal. Just do it. Mm -hmm. So she gets married. And literally months into the marriage, she starts telling friends and family that she feels suffocated in her marriage. And that she regrets getting married. There's emails to her brother. There's conversations with her dad, with her mom, friends, coworkers. Like she just, she was very vocal about not wanting to be in the marriage. And everybody kept talking her out and be like, no, 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 it's normal. Just stay. So around this time, she also gets a new boss. His name is Mike Robertson. He's an Australian immigrant who was also married at the time. So she felt like she could open up to him because he knew the struggles of like being married. I don't know how many people at work were married and weren't, but I know she was young in her field. Mm-hmm. So I feel like she maybe didn't have anyone to talk to. Yeah, I'm assuming like what, mid-20s, right? She was like 20, yeah, like 24. 24, 26, somewhere yeah. between that range. Early 20s. Which I think even for 1999, I think getting married in your mid-20s is still kind of like, oh, you're getting married pretty quickly. Yeah, your life is taking off fast. You're starting a career. You're married. You're soon probably going to yeah. start a family. Like, it's just, it's quick. Yeah, and like fast forward now to 24, like you get married in your 20s. It's like, what are you doing? Yeah, like, everybody's like, don't do it. <laughs> Wait a couple years. You'll, you have time. All right. So at some, like they start to see them like office is seeing them flirting and talking and taking lunch breaks and like, you can see. see the rumors starting. Mm-hmm. And if you've ever worked in an office, those rumors spread fast. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. If I've ever learned anything in my careers, you don't date someone from your office because it just everybody's involved. I mean, you now you get rumors on your days off. Yeah. 
Okay. But the rumors are going and obviously sometimes you're like, oh, it's just people talking. But these rumors actually led to something where they did begin an affair. And in 2000, it got to the point where Kristen began using drugs again. And Robertson discovered this because he walked into her office and he saw the residue of the methamphetamine on her desk. So he has two hats. He's her boyfriend, quote unquote, and her boss. Okay. Yep. So the boss would obviously report her and push it up the chain. The boyfriend would probably help her get out of it. So what do you think he did? Ooh. I mean, he would pick the boyfriend. Yeah. Honestly. So he takes whatever he finds and he goes and he flushes it down the toilet. He cleans her desk and he just looks the other way. One of the biggest concerns with that is that her job duties, one of them was specifically to log in any drugs or evidence that came in on someone's person Mm -hmm. and put it into like an evidence file. So she had direct access to all sorts of things in there. And considering her past, it obviously like raises concerns. So we're now in November of 2000. So yeah, we're in November of 2000 and they're 17 months into their marriage. And Greg just begins having like, I don't know if it's like a hunch or just somebody might've mentioned something like a gut feeling. Yeah. But he's already starting like the whole questioning of like, is there something I need to worry about? Are you doing something? Mm -hmm. Are you having an affair? Are you back? Like the distrust is there. And that same week. So her birthday is on October 25th. So this is just literally right after her birthday. Uh-huh. Yep. So her parents come over for a weekly dinner and they notice that Greg's drinking a lot. And he's like really like out of character for himself, like what they're used to. Mm-hmm. And he keeps obsessing over these roses that he got her for her birthday that are like dying already because they were bought two weeks prior. Or like a week and a half, depending. So her dad's just like noticing that he's like not quite himself. And other than that, they're like, all right, well, like that was weird, but maybe it's just an off day. But you can tell they're kind of like there's tension in the home. So on the 20 on the 5th of November, Greg finds a love letter from Robertson in Kristen's purse confirming the affair. So, like, he finally has the proof to say, like, ha, everything I've been asking, like, I'm not crazy. You really are doing something. So he gave her an option. He's like, I want you to resign your job or I report you to your work for both the drug abuse and the affair. Mm -hmm. Or you can resign, get clean and like, let's start over. So she obviously didn't like the ultimatum very much. On the morning of November 6th, Kristen calls Greg's work to report him sick for the day. So back in the day, I don't know how most companies are now, but you used to be able to call somebody out sick. Like, yep. oh, my kid's sick or my mom's sick or something. Nowadays, companies usually want to talk to the person directly. I didn't, I mean, I feel like it's always been that way, though. No, I, re- I remember being able to call someone. My, like having calling someone in sick wasn't a big deal. Like if it's someone, you know, like your mom, your dad, immediate family. Significant other. Yeah. I find that kind of strange, honestly. I mean, that's weird. I don't, I mean, let us know, honestly, like if, if that's ever happened. I know I mean, nowadays it's not a practice, but I think no, back then it was. Back then it was really like, like having like, say for instance, hi, this is, this is Mrs. So-and-so calling for Mr. He's out sick. He yeah. Be, like, that's strange. Anyways. Okay. 
So well, she calls him out sick. She he, calls her boss, lets him know. All right. And then she goes on her merry way to work. So while she's at work, keep in mind, this is like eight, nine in the morning. Yes. She is seen in Robertson's office crying and being very emotional. And, uh, you know, like it's one of those like glass offices where you can see in, but obviously there's no sound. So you're just guesstimating what the conversation is. Yes. So she leaves for lunch at 12 and the apartment manager sees her arrive back at the apartment around 1210. So she goes in, she has lunch with her husband. She checks on him. And she says that it's at this moment when he confesses to taking oxycodone, which is a painkiller, and clonazepam, which is a sedative, in addition to the cold medications, because he was just feeling down. Like he was just down in the dumps. And this clonazepam was prescribed to her years before when she was detoxing from methamphetamine. So she still had some left over, and I guess she kept it in her medicine cabinet. Which, don't keep your medicine for years. It does expire. Mm-hmm. Just an FYI. Yeah. Um, so then at 12.41, she makes a pit stop at Vaughn's and then heads back to work. The remainder of the day, she kind of spends intervals of the day calling Robertson on his personal cell phone. And then at 12.30, she leaves work to go see him outside of the office. So like to meet up with him somewhere else. She gets home at 5.00. She leaves again at 6.30 to run errands, according to her. And then she makes it back home between 8 and 8.30. So that's her evening where, like, Mm -hmm. she was hardly home. Think of nine. So she says that she got home. She kissed Greg on the forehead while he was sleeping. And then she went for a nice long bath. A one, like, about an hour, hour and a half in the bathtub. Okay. She gets out around 9, 9.30-ish, and when she gets into bed, she feels that Greg's body is cold. And that's when she calls 911. So from when she called 911 to when the paramedics arrived, it took three minutes. They lived in La Jolla, so it was, like, pretty quick. I think there's, like, a hospital very nearby. Well, yeah, like UTC area, right? The yeah. UCSD hospitals right there and, the, like, all those like, medical centers now, right? Yeah. But three minutes is pretty fast. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a really quick response. Being like, and keep in mind they're on the phone with you the whole time. Like they don't hang up until the paramedics arrive. Uh huh. So there is a recording of the phone call, All right. and she was asked during this phone call if she can try to do CPR. Which keep in mind he's laying in bed. Mm-hmm. So she says that in order to get more stability, she moved him to the floor. And when she moved him to the floor, the area that she moved him to, he had staged with roses all around, like to outline a body. Uh, crumpled pages of her diary where she was planning to leave him and one wedding photo. On the floor. Yes. On the floor. And when she brought him to the floor to do CPR, he just happened to land right in the middle of the setup. That is very interesting. I mean, just remember that we'll come back to it in a minute. Okay, I, have, <laughs> but, I already have a lot of questions for you. So when they arrived three minutes later, she was in a different room and they noticed that she wasn't out of breath and that Greg didn't have any red marks on his chest, which would have indicated like the CPR when you're applying pressure. Yeah. You would see some sort of distress on his body. Mm-hmm. And there was none of that. So it was a little weird, but Okay. And they obviously do the interviewer like, hey, you know, can you tell us about your day? Like what happened? 
And her first story is he had no drugs in his system. He's completely anti-drugs. He had a cold. He wasn't feeling well. And like, I thought he was asleep. And then I felt his body realize he wasn't. But when I came home for lunch, he was fine. He was like getting better. Yeah. And then after more questioning, her story changes a little bit, as it always does. The second story, she admits that he had confessed to taking the oxycodone and the clonazepam with the cold medicine. So she's saying that the combination of all three is probably what causes reaction. Which it is a lot of medicine in someone's body. And as a toxicologist, I'm sure they like added some weight to that. Like I'm, I'm no toxicologist, right? Right. But I know for a fact, anytime you mix cold medicine with something else, like another sedative. Yeah. It's never a good thing. Yeah. Uh, They literally tell you on there, like, do not. Yeah. Don't do this. Don't do that. Like, so I would figure, okay, this has to deal with something, right? Yeah. Okay. So. So. She also let them know that it kind of appeared in her opinion that he ended his life due to their marital problems and that the roses was a goodbye reference to her favorite movie, American Beauty. So I've never seen the movie, but I've seen the reference and I get it. Have you watched the movie before? Oh, heck yeah. I've seen American Beauty. I mean, Kevin Spacey, like. But there's a scene, right, where yeah, the roses there's a, there's are a scene. So, so Kevin Spacey, his daughter's best friend, and uh, she's you know underage, right, and that uh, he has fantasies of where she's you know nude and she's in bed and and she's covered by just rose petals. Oh, okay. And they're just falling from the ceiling, and, and you know, and he's just he's just fantasizing, and that's part that's main what this is going on here. But yeah, that's what she was kind of trying to. She was saying that's what he staged. As like a final goodbye to her. Mm. So that night, like obviously there's people in and out and there's, you know, all these people like taking tests and trying coroners trying to get the body and evidence and they still have procedures for this. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of witnesses, I'm sure like neighbors and stuff outside trying to see what's going on. And they notice that Kristen is off to the side, like kind of in the dark and she's hugging someone very passionately. And they're like, oh, like, you know, oh, instead of cons- consoling, like it kind of looked like consolation, but it just looked like so much comfort. Like, yeah, it almost looked more of a couple than a, you know, like what you would expect out of a brother or a friend or. Yes, it just seemed too comfortable, I guess. OK, so it was just something that people were like, that's weird. Took note, didn't say anything about it. So according to them, the theory lined up with everything that was on hand. They did a search of the home on November 7th and they found. No traces of drugs. They didn't find any containers, but everything else kind of made sense with what she was telling them. And the autopsy was done at the San Diego medical examiner's office. And they found traces of the oxy and the clonazepam. So, I mean, again, everything's Mm -hmm. lining up, but Greg's family was simply not convinced. They knew Greg. They knew how he felt. It just, it wasn't him. Especially his brother, Jerome, who was distrusting of Kristen from the gate. He pushed for further questioning. He even went to the point where he started recording his conversations with Kristen, hoping to like catch her in a lie and then take that to police as evidence. Oh, wow. But nothing came of it. Like he just he was so close. He had that hunch. He was really trying and like there was nothing really there. So um, in addition to that, 
Greg's boss also starts calling and saying like something doesn't feel right. You know, something's off. Can you guys keep looking like it just doesn't seem like the Greg we knew. And in addition, coworkers start calling. So I don't know if like Greg's family was telling people or if everybody was just on their own kind of raising these. But on November 8th, they actually get another phone call from Russ Lowe, who is a coworker of Kristen and Mike Robertson. And he confirmed the affair. He also let them know that Mike replaced him when he came in as a new boss. So like there was already tension because he was getting replaced by someone and like demoted essentially. Mm -hmm. And then when that affair began, it turned the office into more turmoil because like the favoritism and the rumors and people that don't agree, like it just shifted the dynamic. Yeah. So he was like, there's something really fishy in there. Like, I don't know what I'm giving you the info, but there's something. So between all these people raising questions, police had no choice but to keep looking at it from different angles. So when they go back for a second look, guess what they find? I mean, there has to be at least, you know, time of death. You know, what time? Oh, good guess. Right. Before we get to that. Okay. They realized that the report was conducted by one of Kristen's coworkers, obviously, because it was the same office. Oh, that's right. Because she did work in the same office. She worked in the same. That's right. Okay. So... But it was signed off and approved by Mike Robertson himself. Oh. Which means he could have edited anything before the final report went in. And like how you mentioned earlier, like be the boss or be the boyfriend. Yeah. And he took the boyfriend. He had two different hats. And if he picked boyfriend the first time. Mm -hmm. So one thing that was on the report that I don't know if he either didn't catch or didn't think would be a big deal was the original examiner noted that there was liquid in Greg's lungs cause it, that would have caused shallow breathing for at least six to 12 hours prior to his passing. Liquid. So that was like an oddity that like didn't quite fit. That's very strange. Like how, I mean, was he drowned or, I mean. Well, there's a lot of different ways, but it's just his breathing was labored. <clears throat> okay. In addition to that, he also noted that the bladder was extremely full, which would have been very, very painful. If you've ever had to wait to go, you know how painful that is. Yes. So imagine going like possibly six to 12 hours without going to a restroom and having a full bladder. Uh, like both of those combined, it wasn't a quick and painless transaction. Mm-hmm. So hours after the autopsy was signed, she signed to have his skin and his eyes donated. And his remains immediately cremated. Hours after. Yeah. Like, once you cremate, everything, like, there goes the evidence. Everything gets erased, essentially. And it's... Not not fully. So, when they do an autopsy, and I didn't know this, they save samples. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. So, they're legally required to save samples. And maybe this is the reason they do it. And yes, his body was cremated, but they still had the remaining samples from that first test. So they sent them to L.A. to a private lab to get reexamined. Okay. So during this is when they found the original drugs in there, along with large traces of fentanyl. Which, if we hear it a lot now, but in 2000s, this was still very new mm-hmm. and very uncommon to see. Yes. So he had 57 nanograms. To be exact, that's seven times the amount needed to kill a man. And fentanyl, for those that don't know, is 80 times stronger than morphine. 
So it is a very strong and lethal drug if not administered correctly. And that was in his like bloodstream. That was in his body. That was in the autopsy. So that was in the samples. Wow. So how did the first examiner miss it? That's huge. The reason they missed it is because they normally don't test for it because it's so uncommon. And both Kristen and Mike knew this, which is probably why she used it. Mm -hmm. Wow. So the other questions that came up are, why was he so groggy since the morning? And the answer to that is the smaller amounts mean that it takes longer to take effect. It also matters on how it was technically ingested, I guess you could say, or how it was taken. Yeah, Yeah. administered. Yeah. So that would also affect the the processing time or the reaction time. Um, and then as far as the fluid in the lungs, which you mentioned, doesn't make sense. And if he was really struggling to breathe for six to 12 hours before, how did he make the bed of roses? When you feel sick, you're not up making them like, it's like, oh, I'm going to pick a cake. Yeah, it's you're like, not no. trying to like, oh, I'm going to teach her. Like, no, if you're... No. If anything, you're just laying in bed. You'll probably turn on the TV and watch some Netflix or Hulu Especially or if he didn't have the energy to call his own boss. Yeah. Okay. So, in addition to that, they didn't find any container of the fentanyl. So, if he had taken it himself, like, they would have found it either in the trash or in his drawer, like, somewhere in the home. Mm-hmm. And again, I said they followed procedures, so the entire home was searched. There was nothing there. So a second look at the playback of the 911 call showed that there was no attempt at CPR heard on the call. Like I said, it was a three minute phone call. You'd be able to hear, you know, the out of breath. Yeah. The entire transaction. Yeah. You you, you better hear something on the phones. Yeah. And then someone ID'd the visitor at that home that night as Mike Robertson. So the inventory, they obviously went back. They did inventory of the San Diego Medical Examiner's Office. And three cases were missing evidence. The drugs that were mainly missing were oxycodone, clonazepam, methamphetamine, and fentanyl. Both 15 patches, which I didn't know they made them in patches. Wow. As well as 10 milligrams in liquid form. And Robertson at this point admitted to knowing about the drug addiction but only with what she was ingesting. Mm. So he's like, I kind of knew she had access. I didn't know to the extreme. So we're still kind of like keeping it safe. One month later, they're obviously both fired. And when they seized their computers, they found thousands of emails confirming the affair. But on top of that, they realized that Robertson's computer also had multiple searches for fentanyl information. And they were like saved in different files under different names, mm-hmm. which why would you need to like if it's part of your job, you would just label it what it is. Well, maybe because he was trying to hide it. Well, no, that's exactly right. it. Like if yeah. you're being honest about like, oh, this is what my I'm using it for work. You would just label it for what it is. Yeah. But why mislabel your files? Not because there, there had to be like some kind of master plan pre- premeditation. Yeah. There's some involvement in there. Like that wasn't just a random coincidence. Yes. So the San Diego Medical Examiner's Office also had recently sent Kristen and Robertson to a training for fentanyl to learn the dangers and key facts to help them do their job because it was up and coming. So they had just gone to an out-of-town conference where they each had hotel rooms paid to sleep separately, and Robertson paid for a separate room for them to sleep in together. Wow. Which I don't know why you would spend extra money if they already paid for it. 
and you're processing with your card and you're like leaving a trace. But not very smart. Yeah, not at all. Mm-hmm. So Greg's boss states that he was hyper nervous and he was preoccupied with family problems, which caused him to leave work early on October 31st, November 2nd and November 3rd to take care of family affairs. And let's remember he passed on the 6th. So literally the week leading up. Mm-hmm. Yes. So knowing this is what made him more uneasy that when Kristen called, he wanted to speak to Greg directly to know that everything was okay. So he called multiple times. He called at 10 a.m., no answer. He called at noon, no answer. Another boss tried calling at 7 p.m. And Kristen actually answered and was like, oh, Greg's sleeping. Sorry, I'll let him know you called. It was just very short. And he was left uneasy, so he commented to the other boss that had been calling. And he's like, okay, I'll try again later. Like, that's weird. So then he called again between 9 and 9.30 on the night of the 6th. And Kristen answered on the first ring and said, sorry, it's a bad time. The ambulance is here and Greg's not feeling well. Which at this point, she knows he's passed. Yeah. So. He was ice cold. Yeah. So why tell him? It was just weird. Yeah. So the next day, that same boss gets a call from Robertson saying to call Kristen's parents to ask questions, but to not question the DeViller family. So don't call Greg's family and his parents. Leave them alone. But if you want answers, you can call Kristen's parents and they'll tell you. So he does because he wanted to know what was going on. And he spoke to Constance, who told him it was an allergic reaction to cold medication mixed with other drugs. Which, if anybody's had an allergic reaction before, you know they're pretty immediate. They don't kick in like 16 hours later. Yeah. So it obviously raised a lot of questions. Which was the core reason why his coworkers and his boss kept pushing the police to keep looking. Like that one little interaction caused everybody to kind of lose trust. So one of the biggest questions was that one surviving rose from October 25th. Like one, what kind of rose survives that long? And two, like <laughs> it just it was odd. <laughs> it's like one of the biggest puzzle pieces. A non-GMO rose. So it, what kind of food? So it turns out that when she went to Vaughn's that day, she did pay cash and she got rid of her receipt, but she made one big mistake. What was that? She used her phone number and her Vaughn's card to get a discount. <laughs> so when you do that, it saves your purchases and they're able to see what you bought. Yes. So if she hadn't used her phone number they would have never been able to piece that she bought a single red rose Mm. hours before he passed. Yes. Yeah. Wow. So shocker there. Mm -hmm. So in 2001 in May, which is obviously the following year, Mike left back to Australia to care for his dying mother. So he fled. There was like rumors of him being a co-conspirator, but nothing had been filed yet. June 25th of that same year, 2001, seven months later, Kristen was finally arrested for first-degree murder. Her bail was set at $1.2 million, and she spent six months in jail while her parents worked to get her bail money. Eventually, they ended up having to refinance their home, and this left them with absolutely no money to hire a lawyer. So she was represented by a public defender. 
Oh gosh. I mean, one point twenty five million dollars. Even ten percent of that is a lot. You're looking of money. at one hundred and twenty five thousand, one hundred fifty. Yeah. Yeah. To have to refinance your home. So in January two thousand two, she was released on bail, and the first thing she does: media interviews, and she maintains her innocence. She claims that it was suicide and that, you know, he was just really upset about the marital problems and he just couldn't take it, which on October 13th of 2002, her trial ends and she was found guilty. So it took them eight hours to deliberate and she was found guilty life without parole. And she did actually testify her for herself, which is usually a huge no-no because of how open you're leaving yourself for the cross-examination. So this cross-examination was pretty funny because they brought up, again, all the holes in her story. And it was always, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. So her final statement to them was, yes, I did lie consistently, but I'm not lying about this one. (laughs) Which, I mean, isn't that what every liar would say, though? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yes. I just feel like if you wanted to testify so bad, I would have tried to have a better defense than that. But again, she has a public defender. I mean, if, if, if she had a, like a legit lawyer, they would have told her to. They not would have testify. told her no, and they would have been like, "I am not letting you go up there." Okay, so she got life without parole. Yes. So prosecution's theory is this: in short, she administered the patches of fentanyl while he was sleeping. And at least 16 hours prior to his passing. So he would have had that peak, like, I guess, high, you would say. um, A couple hours in, depending on the patches, it would have taken some effect. And that once that wore off, that's when the shallow breathing began, which is where the six to 12 hour gap comes in. Um, She set up the evidence to look like a suicide. And then she also went to work and like the days following and set her coworkers up with the story of what her version was so that whenever his body came in for autopsy, they'd already know what to look for. Mm-hmm. So that it all lined up like, oh, yeah, yeah. manipulate everybody's. Yeah. You know, and everything. instead of having an open mind to whatever case they have, it's just already like, hey, this is what happened. This is yeah. exactly how it goes. Which normally if you come back from work after a tragic event, which why would you go back to work right yeah. away? But you don't want to talk about it. You just want some privacy. You want some time to process. She was very vocal and open about what happened, which raised red flags for everybody. Yeah. So Mike went on to Australia. He ended up opening his own toxicology forensic firm, and he remarried. And according to an article published in September of 2013, in 2006, a warrant was issued that if he ever returns to America... It's a hundred thousand dollars warrant to like process him. Oh wow. Okay. So I don't think he'll be coming back yeah. anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> He's not coming back. Um, so Greg's family did sue for wrongful death. They sued Kristen directly and they were awarded a hundred million, which due to the civil laws or whatever, it was reduced to ten million plus four point five million for compensatory compensatory damages. Compensatory. I struggle with that word. Yeah. Uh, but yes. You did it better than I would. So they also sued the San Diego Medical Examiner's Office for $1.5 million for giving her access, even with her prior drug addictions. 
And because she had gone and seek medical help and she had been prescribed medication, there was obviously record that she did have that addiction at some point. Yeah. Which means that she should have never been given that job. But. Wow. I know we believe in second chances. I'm just saying. So Kristen maintains her innocence and she has filed many appeals. One of the latest was in 2010. A three panel judge of the Ninth Circuit Court ruled her defense should have challenged the toxicology report and ordered their own. So they did say like your defense was weak. And we can see where like you probably lost because of that or you had a chance at a different outcome. But in 2011, under a new law, the petition was denied. So she had appealed so many times. They're like, that's it. Final chance. Like, it wouldn't have changed the outcome. There's enough evidence to prove you did it. Like, stop. Yeah. So she's currently serving her sentence at Central Valley Women's Facility in Conchilla, California. It's like mid-California, Central. Never heard of it. Sounds like middle of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine like it's like out in the desert, but that's yep. just my mentality. Like San Bernardino, like somewhere out there. Like, I mean, come on. So a couple of things that they did notice with the poor defense was they didn't question the chain of evidence was broken due to a miscommunication between offices when they were getting it retested. So at one point, the, the cardboard box was left unsealed and unattended during somebody's lunch break. So someone was supposed to be at a desk to like receive it and sign it and seal it. And nobody was there. And I think they left it there until they got back. And they're saying, like, it should have never left somebody's eyesight. So, this technically. Is the, this is the defense team saying it could have been tampered with? This is, like, the judges saying that the defense kind of failed at pointing these things out. Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Like, All these right. are arguments they could have made if but they, they had done a little more work. Yeah. Oh, okay. The other thing was they were saying that the fentanyl could have been contamination from the first toxicology report. So, because they never ran their own, like, was it in his bloodstream? Was it on his body? Like. You didn't exactly say where you found it. You said you found traces. Mm -hmm. So that could have been another point to challenge. And then she states that based on this, she feels she could have been framed by coworkers due to the office rumors and the tensions due to her affair. So she's saying like, nobody liked me and they wanted to, you know, they didn't agree with my affair and my life choices. And this is why they framed me for my husband's death. Like they had access, they had motive. There was was opportunity. No. Come on, you just wanted a way out and you just. Right. But then I'm like, well, what happened to he did it himself? Like. So at one point, Mike did tell his one of his employees that he examined Greg's stomach contents himself prior to signing off the report. Which also gave him opportunity. To somehow change the outcome. Scorned lover, I guess, kind of angles where they're taking with that one. So in 2014, Robertson was actually used as a key witness in an Australian case of Gerard Biden. Baden. He was accused of killing his wife. And Robertson testified that she OD'd on her own based on the toxicology report that his firm conducted. But at no point was the jury notified that he's been involved in a prior case where they were saying it was overdose. Yeah. And it was actually he had some involvement. Because he hasn't been accused as a co-conspirator. He's just kind of like. It's one of those where they say person of interest. He's not officially charged. So same thing. But the Australian court feels that the jury should have known about his past. And that it might have changed how much might, weight they put on his opinion. It might have persuaded opinion. a different way for, yeah. for whatever that verdict was. Especially if he's a key witness in a trial uh. like that. <clears throat> so that kind of made global headlines a little bit. 
So Greg was 26 at the time. He was originally from Illinois. He was one of three. He was very family oriented. His boss described him as fun, loving, easygoing. He was super optimistic and he actually had aspirations to go to law school. He was also like a top employee at his startup company and he had a lot of options with them to keep growing. So like nothing from their point of view shows that he would have been suicidal. Like he had a lot of life in front of him and a lot to work for. And it was just taken too soon. That's terrible. I mean, honestly, and I think he was just, he wanted to stay with, uh, with her, but he was trying to help her have a better life. Like he was doing it to like, see the potential in her. So it is really sad. I think there's so many things in here that like were red flags from the gate that it's one of those where in hindsight you see it, but at the moment you just kind of want to take it at face value. Wow. This is crazy. This is a wild story. It was extremely wild. Hence all my OMGs. <laughs> I, I understand. I can, I can understand now. I'm just like, I'm, I'm wow. Like, let us know what you guys think do you think that maybe with a different defense she would have had a fighting chance or like the outcome would have been different um i personally think it wouldn't have changed but everybody might have a different point of view yeah i'm 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 convinced she did it honestly i'm convinced what sells me is the vaunts the red rose yeah, but also just... I mean, the, on top of everything else. On top like, of everything else, honestly. The like patches missing, the the affair. Yeah, the affair, you know, after um, Greg being taken away in the ambulance and Mike being there, like... Yeah, a lot of, a lot of things line up to where it's more than just circumstantial. But if you feel any different or you feel like maybe something had a pocket of doubt that we didn't talk about, let us know. And yeah. Make sure you join us every Monday for your next dose of Where in the World is Crime in San Diego? Catch us on the next case. In case we don't see you, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Tell me where in the world is Crime in San Diego. Hey,